have come to the conclusion, my friends, that there are two types of people in this world. There are people who hate raisins, and there are people who are wrong. <laughs> I obviously fall into the first camp of hating raisins. There is nothing worse than being handed a warm, delicious cookie and taking a bite only to bite into a rotten grape, because that is what they are. Or when someone is making that, that beautiful smell of like cinnamon toast is wafting through your house, you're like, oh, how delicious. And you bite into it only to chomp into a piece of brown goo in what was utter, otherwise a perfectly good piece of toast, right? And I will acknowledge to you, I am not ashamed to confess, that I nibble around the raisins and feed them to the dog, just like Jack. I don't know where he gets it from. I don't know where he gets it from. I will literally eat around the edges of a cookie to avoid the mush bombs. And this is how I feel about life right now. Raisin cookies that look like chocolate chip are the reason I have trust issues. It is that serious, my friends. Don't try to trick me. Don't do it. And you're out wondering, what, what is she talking about? Where are we going with this? Now, some of you are weeping in the pew about the waste of raisins that I'm talking about. And other of you, you're like, there's raisins in this? Oh, I didn't even, uh, hmm. And I cannot relate to you people. You were either for or against, okay? There is no lukewarm raisin loving in this church. Well, yeah, where is she going with this? Well, in many ways, how we approach raisins in our toast, in our cookies, is how we approach the second coming of Jesus. Now you're thinking, I don't know how she's going to get there, but hear me out for a second. The entire story of Scripture is permeated with this reality, this promise of God, his ultimate rule and reign, the end of all things. And when Jesus enters the scene and he departs, uh, you know, he's, he's, he dies and he's resurrected and he ascends, we are told that he's going to come again. And Paul talks about it, the other epistles talk about it, Revelation dishes some major whammies on the subject, right? Some confusing whammies, but whammies nonetheless. But we don't really know what to do with it. It's like there's raisins scattered all through the loaf, right? All throughout it. And we have a couple ways we can respond. We can be, like, probably like me, uh, the major raisin avoiders. Fingers in the ears, la, 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 la. Jesus is coming back. Okay, fine. I don't really want to talk about it. La, 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 because it's confusing and I don't understand it and it just makes me upset. So I'm just going to pretend they're not in here, right? I'm going to nibble around the raisins, so to speak. Uh, these folks find all the debates about days and times and this millennium and this millennium. They find them to be scary and confusing, but also kind of tiresome and pointless. So they just, let's just ignore that. Let's just live for Jesus. Let's just not talk about what's coming. And then there are the other crowd, the all raisins all the time crowd, all right? These are the folks that are so fixated on the coming of Jesus, what might be coming and what that might be look like, that they are essentially no earthly good, right? No attention to what it means to be faithful in the meantime because they are too busy reading the latest book on the second coming, listening to the latest podcast on the second coming, and praying and fasting every time an eclipse rolls around. All raisins all the time. You know them. You know them. You might be one. That's okay. I love you anyway. And then, bless their hearts, there's the third crowd that's like, oh, there's raisins in this? Jesus is coming back? That's a thing? Oh, right? And so there's all these different ways we respond to the second coming. We either ignore it because we don't understand it, like, eh, just ignore it. Or we obsess about it, or we're completely oblivious to the fact that this life is actually headed somewhere. 
Well, it's good to know that we are not alone in our confusion and angst about Jesus' second coming. In our text today, we will see that the church in Thessalonica had been, we've been following them for a few weeks now, you should probably know who they are, had some questions too. Big questions that mattered, not just for the life to come, but questions that mattered for how life is to be uh, lived today. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That's where we'll be hanging out today. Now, keep in mind, that this church in Thessalonica was probably established about 20 years or so after Jesus' uh, resurrection and ascension. So this letter is the earliest record we have of the early church, earlier than even most of the Gospels, okay? Um, If not all of them, I'm not sure when Mark was written, but anyway, it's very, very early in the Christian tradition. Okay, and so from pretty clear from what Paul says in this letter and other things elsewhere, that the church expected Jesus to come back really, really quickly. Like, the, you know, Jesus, he died, and he was resurrected, and then he was ascended to the Father, and the angels came and said, hey, guys, go to Jerusalem. I'm going to send my spirit. Or Jesus is going to send his spirit. Go there and receive it. And so they go back, and they go to Jerusalem. They receive the Holy Spirit, and they're like, okay, cool, we got it. Come on back now, Jesus. And they thought it was going to come really, really soon. But here's the thing. The church found themselves in a bit of a pickle because 20 years later, and still no Messiah has returned. And in this waiting, this this 20 years, this period of time, people in their congregation have died. And so not only are they grieving in sadness at the loss of their loved one, but they're grieving in fear, grieving in hopelessness, because they don't know what's going to happen to their loved ones. Did they miss the boat? Are they lost forever? Where are they? And it doesn't help that they are completely immersed in a culture that had no imagination or hope for life after death. And so Paul looks at his congregation, the overwhelming sense of fear and of loss, the inconsolable grief, the confusion about this life of faith and Jesus' faithfulness. What does it have to say for what's to come? And Paul wants to respond to them. So let's read the text this morning, chapter 4, starting in verse 13. It says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them, to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Thanks be to God. Now, these words, Paul's words, were intended to inform and correct and to teach, but most of all, they were intended to comfort, which is interesting because this text in contemporary Christian faith usually has the opposite effect. Now, how many of you as kids or teens saw some form of a movie or a book about the end times with a major focus on God's people getting sucked up into heaven and everybody else left behind. Anybody else see that movie? Anybody else read that book? Okay. And if you weren't ready, too bad for you. You are left behind, right? I remember watching a really old school, I can't remember the name of it, a really old school version of this. It was pre-Left Behind days, like the book. And watching it, and this girl, she'd been, like, living the wild life, right? Wild teenager, those teenagers. And uh, she goes to bed, 
And apparently, Jesus comes back in her sleep, and she wakes up, and her house is empty. There's piles of clothes laying around. And this is kind of what the image that they, uh, that they imagine. Like, like, everybody goes up. And let me just say, the piles of clothes, lay, are they all naked? What is happening in this rapture, right? And so she's left wondering, there's piles of clothes. My family is gone. I have been left behind. And it's the stuff of nightmares. If you saw this stuff when you were a kid, they give you bad dreams for years because it's scary. But as always, history and context are really important in this passage. You see, this whole rapture, because this is referred to as the, the rapture, this interpretation of this text in Thessalonians is really, really new. You know, the Christian faith, how old is it? It's 2,000 years old, plus Israel before that. 2,000 years, we've had the story of Jesus. And this whole rapture thing was only kind of floated to the surface about 200 years ago. That's, real, that's like a baby. That's like an infant in Christian tradition, okay? And that back in the 1800s, and it was really only made popular in the 1970s by a book by a guy named Hal Lindsey called The Late Great Planet Earth. Anybody read that gem? Yes, yes, I have as well. And that is what brought the rapture to the forefront of our attention. But prior to that, prior to Hal Lindsey and prior to 200 years ago with a guy named John Darby, nobody ever read this text and said, oh, God's, God's going to shop back people to heaven. That's, nobody saw that in the text. It wasn't there. Maybe it's because they didn't have shop backs. That's probably part of the reason, right? But nobody understood this text in the way that we currently, in popular theology, interpret it, okay? And so when you read this text in context, that with an eye both to the culture in which it was written, the Roman Empire, and with an eye to the grander narrative of Scripture, we get an entirely different understanding of what's happening here. Because Paul's going to draw on the imagery of the Roman Empire, the water in which everyone is swimming, so to speak, and he's going to draw on the image of biblical stories, the narrative of scripture, to paint a picture of what Jesus' return is going to look like and what it's going to mean. Not in some predictive play-by-play, like on a Monday, this will happen, on Tuesday, buckle your seatbelts because this is happening, right? No, not a play-by-play, but rather this overarching picture, a visual poem, if you would, to describe and declare Jesus' lordship and explain our relationship to that lordship. Now, you got to use your imaginations for a second, your holy imaginations. And I want you to imagine for a second that you are a citizen of that ancient Roman Empire. You live in the city of Thessalonica. You're a part of that Roman Empire. But you're way off the beaten path, like way off. Like if Rome's here in Italy, like way over here is Thessalonica, okay? And even though for us the distance doesn't look that great, considering their modes of transportation available, it was a long way. So it's like the Hawaii of the Roman Empire in a way. They are not on the main route, okay? They're not seeing the emperor on a daily basis, to say the least. And so here you are in Thessalonica. There are wars raging around you. There are threats uh, coming against your city, encroaching, and you wonder, you wonder, have we been forgotten? Will we be remembered by our king, or are we all alone in the universe? And then one day, you're, you're still in Thessalonica, remember? Are you imagining this with me? You look out the window and down the road, and you see, like, dust clouds coming, and you're like, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. The bad guys are coming, ah! And the cloud comes closer, and then all of a sudden you see the flag go up. And what? Lo and behold, it's the flag of the emperor. The king has come. He's returned. You haven't been forgotten. Your faithfulness, in spite of all the threats and the competing allegiances, your faithfulness has not gone unseen. 
And so as tradition requires, you gather together all the remaining faithful ones and you head out on the road, down the road, as a welcoming committee to the king to celebrate all that the king has accomplished, to participate in his victory, to say, hey, I was on your side the whole time. Yay, right? To participate in the king's victory. Now, once you've met the king on the road, do you hang out on the road, have a party there? Bring a picnic basket? No. Do you go back to Rome? No. No, you gather together with the emperor and you go back into the city. Why? To establish the king's rule and reign right there in your city. Now, there are several Greek words that describe this very politically charged encounter, but it was a common thing that the city, these outlier cities, they would await their king, their emperor, and then they would see him coming, coming forth, and they would go out to meet him as a welcoming committee, and they would go back into the city to celebrate and establish the king's lordship, okay? So do you see some of the parallels that Paul's drawing on? He even uses some of those weird political words that I won't bore you with today, but they're in there. A reigning king is far away. His people are suffering and they are fearful as they await that king. And oh my goodness, the joy and elation as they see their king finally coming in triumph over the enemy, over sin and over death and over evil. And so Paul takes that and he expands the metaphor and he describes us or the people, the the church, Meeting King Jesus as he comes forth to bring back his people, Jesus coming in the clouds, the place of his rule and reign, that realm of heaven. But that's not where they stay. In the text, no. They rather they come together and they go back into the city. Why to hang out? No, to establish the king's reign, to bring the kingdom of God to earth fully. It's kind of like a new creation version of the triumphal entry, ending, or entry but with a much better ending right? The triumphal entry the first time resulted in a crucifixion. The triumphal entry this time results in the kingdom of God come down. It's a good word. And we're going to unpack that as we keep going this morning. But do you see in that brief, this little snippet, do you see how that is a totally different story than the whole beam me up Scotty version, right? where God shows very little regard, in the Beam Me Up Scotty version of the, of the rapture, God shows very little regard for this creation and instead just removes God's people and this place is kind of left to itself, right? No redemption, no restoration, just God's people taken away. Now that story makes for some very interesting and somewhat terrifying books and movies, but it makes for some really poor theology. It makes for a really poor understanding of who God is and what God intends for creation. It's Honestly, it's a false story. It's built on fear and escapism and a lack of a sanctified sanctified imagination for just how much God loves this place, loves his creation, and how far he will go to set it right. That's a false story. But here's the thing. There is a much better story, a much truer story that once Uh, We hear it. Once we heed it, once we embrace it, our spirit will sing, yes, this. This is what I was made for. This is where this whole thing is going. This is why I can live in full hope. So let me tell you a better story. A better story that begins at the beginning of time as God created. And God created not because he was lonely, not because he lacked something, not because he needed something. God created out of an overflow of love. And the spirit blew over the waters and brought forth life. 
It's like that making alive spirit went forth into the void and created newness. Spirit breathed, spirit infused newness. And when it was all said and done, when the formless void of space had been shaped into oceans and rivers and mountains and valleys and when fish and birds and every kind of animal filled the world, when man and woman stood together in the garden, God's response was, oh, it is good. And this is what God would look like if you were. If you ever wonder how God feels about you, about God's creation, this emoji is going to do the trick. And if you don't know what this emoji means, I can't help you. God is so full of love. Googly eyes full of love for this creation that he made bursting with love from top to bottom. But the problem that always comes is that we didn't trust that love. We did not trust that love had our best interest in mind. We didn't trust the boundaries of love. And so we broke them and made our own way thus introducing sin and rebellion and hurt and brokenness into creation and the kicker, death. Death itself enters the scene, seemingly snatching from us the goodness that God intended. Oh, but God, with those great googly eyes of love, he is not taking that kind of nonsense sitting down. And so he begins his great rescue. You know the story? We talked about it all summer long. God's great rescue plan to bring about redemption, creating something out of nothing. God calls what? A family. He takes Abraham and Sarah, two barren, childless wanderers, and out of their nothing, God makes everything. A family as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And God's desire is to say, hey, you guys, Abraham, Sarah, and your multitude of offspring, you are called to embody the God way of being in life. I want you to live in obedience. I want you to show the world what it means to worship me, what it means to serve me, what it means to participate in God's rescue plan. People of God are people of Israel, Abraham's family. You are the rescue plan. Now go get them. And there's a hitch. Because God's means of rescue, the people of God, became a part of the problem. Now, N.T. Wright uses a beautiful metaphor to help us understand that. Imagine... Ten car pile up, whoosh, fire, mashed metal, the worst car accident you've ever seen. Sin and death and evil, ah, it's so bad. And so God says, rescue operation for my beloved creation, here it comes. Off goes the ambulance, right? Neener, 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 going to the big crash. But eh, it's icy and whoo, boom, off the road goes the ambulance into the ditch, crashing into the pile. And now what was meant to be the rescue operation has become a part of the problem. The people of God, meant to embody that for the world, become a contributor to the problem through their disobedience and their rebellion and their rejection of the boundaries of love. The rescue plan is in the ditch. But, oh, there is always a but, isn't there, with God? But even then, God, with the rescue plan in the ditch, God wasn't going to give up. You know, so we hear all throughout the Old Testament stories of like Ezekiel. You know that story where the prophet comes and God says, hey, Ezekiel, I want you to preach to these dry bones. And he goes, God, they literally don't have ears. And he said, do it anyway. And God, through Ezekiel, releases that making alive spirit. And what was once dead becomes alive. That resurrecting power. But the story isn't just about a pile of dry bones. It's about God's promise to breathe new life into creation, to never, 
ever abandon this place, no matter how dead or broken it seems. And so with that promise, God sends the rescuer, that one perfect Israelite to embody God, that God way of living, to live out the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven through who? Through Jesus. That making alive spirit, we're going to talk about it so soon as Advent's coming, that making alive spirit descends on Mary and she conceives in her womb a son. And that son goes out into the world doing his father's business, giving glimpses of the kingdom of God. He heals the sick. He feeds the hungry. He raises the dead. And in every encounter, we see the kingdom of God just breaking in, just breaking in. Remember that story in John 4, or John 11? And, you know, he has that beloved friend. And all the disciples say, hey, guys, our Jesus, Jesus, our friend is sick. We need to go. And Jesus is like, yeah, I'll get to it. No worries. Four days later, he gets to it, and it's too late. Lazarus is dead. You don't come back from that kind of thing, right? And so Jesus stands before the tomb weeping as he sees the tomb because it is a monument to all that is wrong in the world. Death and brokenness and sorrow and hurt and pain. And in the midst of what seems like a hopeless cause, Jesus speaks with a mighty voice, breathing out that making alive spirit. And he says, what does he say? He says, Lazarus, come forth. And he does. Because the spirit, that making alive spirit, brings life where there is death. Things that seem way beyond hope, way beyond redemption. And the spirit says, "Uh uh-uh, look what I can do. That making alive spirit. And so in Jesus, the kingdom of God is breaking in to this world. Now, do you remember, and Lynn can correct me later, old school math, I don't remember even what grade it is, Venn diagrams, you know what I'm talking about? Where you'd have one circle over here and one circle over here, and then where they overlap is like that middle space. So like everything I love, or everything about cats, and everything about dogs, and everything they have in the middle goes together. Like they both have tails, they both have fur. Dogs, lovable, cats, not so lovable. So they have to go over here in separate categories, right? Yeah, there you go, you can scold me for that. Later, you cat lovers. But you get the point is that there's two separate realms and there's a very small space of overlap. And so we see like the kingdom of this world, brokenness, sin, death, hurt. We see the kingdom of God, full and and restored. God is in charge. And when Jesus comes, it's like the kingdom of God is breaking into this world. And that overlap space, that's Jesus bringing the kingdom into this place. The kingdom of God breaking into history. Through Jesus, the kingdom of God is coming on earth as it is in heaven. Not fully, it's still two circles, but he's breaking in. God's ultimate intention for creation, not to trash it, but to restore it, that the two kingdoms might become one, a circle. And so through Jesus, the rescuer, we begin to understand God's intention. It is not to wipe this place out and just salvage a few folks and scrap the rest. No. God's plan has always been one of restoration and redemption, a world healed and restored, made new. God's intention has always been for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus exemplifies that when he lives and he embodies the kingdom. When he dies and he conquers death and is raised to new life, he embodies that transformed new creation, kingdom of God 
life. And so here is what Paul is trying to say to this church. He says, guys, I need you to understand what is true of Jesus will be true of you. This same Jesus, the one who went into the grave and was raised from the dead to new life, so too will you be raised. And so those of you who are weighed down by fear of what's coming, to those of you who are grieving with no hope for loved ones lost, for those of you confused about this whole thing, where, where is this ship headed? Paul has this to say. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not because Jesus has conquered over sin and the grave. So too you will be conquerors in him. Fear not because as God spoke, so long ago, breathing out that making alive spirit over the nothingness of the universe and bringing forth life. As Ezekiel breathed out that life, making alive spirit over those dry bones, something beyond redemption. As Jesus declared, whoo, with that making alive spirit out to Lazarus, and that man got up out of his tomb. So too, that making alive spirit will come as Jesus descends on the clouds, calling out with a mighty command, come out, come out. That making alive spirit, raising us to new and transformed life. Fear not. Fear not. Because Jesus, the King, has not forgotten us. Even in this lone, faraway kingdom where we dwell. And like a mighty warrior king, who comes home from battle to establish his rule and his reign, so too Jesus will return to reign and rule. God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Remember the circles? That old Venn diagram with that tiny little place of overlap of Jesus breaking in will finally, finally, it's a circle. Because the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our God and his Messiah. You could say amen there. That's a really good place for one. Fear not. Because back in the garden, when everything went to pot because of our sinful, rebellious heart, not trusting God, not trusting love and the boundaries of love, death came, didn't it? Death came and snatched, took life. Now, there is not a single one of you in this room today who has not been touched by death. The fear of death or the loss of loved ones Death's hand coming and snatching life, taking and grasping and stealing loved ones from us. And in the meantime, tearing open our hearts, reminding us something's not right here. Something is broken in this creation. Death snatches. But Paul reminds us that this current reality of loss and of sin and of death, it is but a season and when Jesus returns to heal his beloved creation, death's power to snatch us away from life is revoked. Instead, Paul repurposes that exact word and becomes that pastor poet as he promises, we will not be snatched by death. We'll be snatched by the king himself and caught up together in the air to meet our Lord. And in that moment, as we are caught up in the, with the Lord in the air amongst the clouds, all symbolic of his realm of heaven, the rule and reign of God. Death is defeated. Death, you will die. 
and death itself is snatched, that we might be with the Lord forever. You know, it's easy to slip back into that old framework that we've heard for so long, that imagery of us being sucked to the clouds to live on some far-off dimension while God just trashes this place. But that's not the story the Bible tells us. That is not God's intention for creation or for us. God, with his great googly eyes of love, will stop at nothing to bring about redemption. He has good intentions. He has a good future for creation. Well, let us allow scripture perhaps to speak for itself this morning. Revelation 21 says this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of eternal life, the water of life. For those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, the murderers, the fornicators, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all the liars, their place will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second Remember one more time, that Venn diagram, heaven, earth, small overlap. Now what Paul has alluded to in 1 Thessalonians and what the revelator is making clear to us now is that the circles will become one. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. The king will return to rule and reign and there will be no need for a temple. Why? that special place for the dwelling of God's presence, we don't need it because God himself will dwell among his people. And finally, all of the enemies that have tore at our hearts and our bodies are subdued. Death, the snatcher of life, is itself snatched and thrown away. No more tears, no more crying, no more pain because all things will be made new. One of my favorite professors said in seminary, and I will never forget this. He said, Stephanie, God isn't going to make all new things. God's going to make all things new. And I have carried that close to my heart, that we serve a God not of throwaway products, but a God of redemption and restoration, making all things new. And that thirst some of what we talked about last week, that longing for something we cannot name, that for fulfillment, for purpose, for love without measure or limit, for acceptance and inclusion, we find that our thirst has been quenched. It reminded me of the woman at the well. You know, the lady, she offered that water to Jesus. Said, hey, you're thirsty. Here's a drink. And Jesus says, you know what? I got something better. The water, the living water, and you will never thirst again. And that is the water that we are being offered in this text. We are satisfied. What are you supposed to do with verse 8? You know, you see that list 
all the people, the liars, the fornicators, the murderers, who'll be thrown into the infamous lake of fire, the stuff of scary movies. And I got to be honest with you, I hate that verse. I hate it. And I know some people, none of you I'm sure, get excited when I preach about hell. But I think that's kind of messed up. Because if you get excited about people going to hell, you need to talk to Jesus about that. It's not a highlight of the story. But we have to acknowledge it. It's in there. Now, the metaphor that I have found to be most helpful with this is that of a concert. You know you go to a really amazing concert, an opera, or like Handel's Messiah, or something amazing, and they say, what do they say to you when you walk in the door? Turn off your cell phones, right? Put away your radios. Put away anything that makes noise. Stop breathing, in fact, if you can do that, right? Because there's a song that needs to be sung. And the new heaven and the new earth, where God reigns supreme, is like that concert. And to allow those who practice evil and who continue to disregard God in his new creation is like letting somebody blast their radios during an opera. God is making some beautiful music, and we are called to participate in it. But not like that. We get to choose, join the song, or remove ourselves. Because this is a song that needs to be sung. And that is the vision that Paul is calling the church in Thessalonica to embrace. Call for us as well. He sees them heavy laden under the burden of doubt and of confusion, of fear and grief at the power of death. He sees the hurt in their hearts at the uncertainty of this life and of the life to come. Not only have their loved ones lost, but what about me? Where is this whole ship headed? I'm seeking to be faithful, but what's coming? Where does it all go from here? And the story that Paul tells us and that I call you to remember today is a story of a God whose love is unrelenting. A God with great googly eyes of love moving heaven and earth to heal his creation. It is a story not of horror films and vanishing bodies and fire, but a story of a persistent lover who will return to restore and redeem and set right, who will call out with a mighty command empowered by the breath of that making alive spirit of God, come out, come out out of death, come out out of darkness, come and enter with me the kingdom of God. Let us establish God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. Come and participate in the good future that I am creating. And so my word to you today is comfort. Comfort, my beloved. This is not the end. The reality that we see is but a shadow of the life to come. And so as we wait, may we live into our kingdom of God citizenship, even now living as citizens of that coming king. As we wait, beloved, may we cling with a white knuckle grip to hope. Remembering that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness. But he is patient with us, not wanting any of us to perish, but wants all of us to come to repentance. So as we wait, may we wait in faithfulness for our coming king. Father God, we acknowledge that sometimes it is hard to wait. 
there is hurt around us. Lord, we have lost loved ones. They have gone before, and we feel like sometimes we're surrounded by death, by hurt and brokenness. And Lord, yet when we look to Scripture, we are reminded that with you, nothing is beyond saving. There is no person and no circumstance that is beyond your redemption because you are a God who breathes your making alive spirit over us. And so, Lord, may we live into that promise, trusting that you are at work now and that you are coming again. This is going somewhere. And, Lord, we look forward to the day when your kingdom will come in its fullness and we can participate with you in establishing your rule and reign, creation as it was meant to be. Thank you that you are a God of resurrection power. In Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit we pray. Oh, beloved church, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction? Beloved, I challenge you to walk in the hope of this story, the story of a God who redeems broken things and who is calling all of creation back to himself. May we live in expectation and hope of that final day of redemption. Go in action and go in peace. You are dismissed. Amen.